podcast episode number 30 i'd like to thank everyone who continues to listen people who have joined our twitter and who have also liked us on the tumblr page if you're interested in joining twitter it's at mike hill hq and the website is www.everythingwentblackmedia.com this time around my good friend chris lorden is joining us he's come down here from boston to hang out and talk about his uh, projects Involving the prison industrial system and his uh, this new work that um, it's a writing piece that he's working on with his uncle who has recently been incarcerated for 41 years. Chris and I have been friends for two decades. It's a long time. We're both older guys, sort of looking ahead, seeing the end of the line, and kind of doing everything we can just to get it all over the fence. We both met when our bands were on tour together back in the 90s, and uh, Chris has gone a transformation from being a hardcore punk into joining the legal establishment feeling dissatisfaction and redefining himself as an educator so without further ado chris lord so chris when did i officially meet you man i think probably like 95 somewhere around 1995 i think it was when V-Card was still happening, right? Right, yeah. You were in Otis, and we ended up linking up for some local shows, and then, then we went out. The uh, At the time, you were working at Just Say Rock, I think, right? The yeah, Just Say on merch, yeah. Yeah. And then eventually, uh, I remember um, you were uh, getting ready. To, you, you were going to law school. Right. So what, what prompted... The change from uh, the glamorous life of <laughs> rock and roll merchandise. Rock and roll merchandise was just something I fell into after, you know, getting out of college. I wanted to do some traveling and I didn't really want to get a serious job yet because I really did want to travel and I did want to play music for a while as far as I could take it, you know, just do that for some time while I had that window of opportunity. And um, yeah, it all just kind of fell together. I hooked up with some friends who were still in music and they were there and, uh, you know, so that's when I was doing that time. But as far as um, going on to graduate school and law school and stuff like that, it was a plan that I was only going to take one year off was the original plan that quickly turned into three plus years. Uh, but I eventually did say, okay, you know, I had talked to the guys in my band at the time about possibly going out to California to relocate. We thought we'd have more success out there, but um, not everybody was on board with that plan, so I went ahead with my own personal plans. That was that was a V card, right? You guys definitely had like more of like um sort of East Bay, right. California sound. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, Our, like mid '90s, and I remember you guys were um, had some stuff out on Allied, right? Uh, which was like you know a West Coast based record label that sort of had that sort of 
you know, East Bay, like pop punk kind of vibe to it. Right. And, and the idea was that we'd probably have much more success, you know, working it out there from that angle at that time, you know, it was like pre-internet and everything yeah. um, that, you know, establishing a home base out there would probably be more beneficial. Uh, but we, d- we didn't end up going through with that. You know, somebody in the band already had a real job and was not interested in, you know, picking up and moving. So that's, that's why I decided to, you know, it was either try to get in another band, start from the ground floor up again, or move forward with my personal plans, which is something that I wanted to do. It was just a question of when, when was going to be the right time. Where did you go to college, like for undergrad? I went to UMass out in Amherst. What what was like your, uh, like, did you always have law school in mind? I did. I did. In fact, um, well, I actually also had teaching in mind too at the time that was always on the table as an option, but, but law as a subject was something I always was gravitated toward. I enjoyed reading about it. I enjoyed seeing how it kind of like played out in life. It was real to me as opposed to some of the other things I studied didn't, didn't speak to me, weren't real to me. You know, they like, I know that like when I studied, um, you know, like, like a subject like French or something like that. Like, you know, I was that classic kid. I'm never going to go to France. What do I need this for? But then, of course, I went on to go to France like eight <laughs> times or something and, and actually did sort of need it. <laughs> Before I actually really knew you, do you remember uh, there was that gym that was um, sort of by the uh, Soldier Field Mall out there in Watertown? Yeah, what was that called? That was like, like by, the, di- by the UPS spot out yeah, there. Yeah, something different now. But before I really knew you, I kind of knew you by sight. I, I used to see you there. I don't know right. You, you I do recall there. that because yeah. you had a CBGB shirt on. <laughs> and, at shirt on. <laughs> and at the time, that was intriguing. <laughs> well, now, now You didn't jackass. see a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, now any jackass could get one of those online somewhere, you know? <laughs> yeah, so I knew that you were onto something that most people didn't know about. <laughs> so, you know, well, it was kind of like when you think back to like high school or something or even the surrounding towns, if there was like one or two kids that were sort of tipping the hat that they were into punk rock or hardcore or some kind of alternative form of music, you just kind of gravitated to one another. Right. You, they ended up being your friend by default almost because there was no one else to pick from and the, that commonality didn't exist with, you know, the kids around you. It just didn't happen. So so you were kind of a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the actual meeting of our two bands was at that practice space that was on Lansdowne Street. Right. Yeah, that's where it was. Now, Lansdowne Street's uh, in Boston, and that's um, a very unlikely place in some ways for, uh, you know, punk rock bands to be rehearsing because it's right across the street from, uh, you know, Fenway Park (laughs) and also a plethora of sort of Guido Euro dance studio, dance type places, you know, and uh, but that's where both of our bands had a, a space, a practice space above was it was Bill's Bar? It's Bill's Bar, yeah, yeah, which actually became a venue that a lot of bands played at, and I yeah. saw a lot, of, a lot of pretty good shows there. Actually, yeah, I saw the Melvins there and some yeah. really good shows. But one night I was going into the practice space, and uh, Jim Rose's sideshow circus thing was performing there, but they didn't have there was no dressing room or anything for that club, so they were just kind of hanging out in the stairwell that we used to access the the band spaces on the top floor. Right. And that dude whose entire body and face is tattooed like a puzzle. Like I remember that cat was standing there and then a couple of other, the people involved in the show. It was just pretty funny to open the, open the door with my key and like they were just all standing there. (laughs) It's like, Hey guys, I got to get through. (laughs) That's, that's how I, I think Tim was the first guy I met Tim, the drummer who, uh, whose place actually acts as, um, 
the tombs away home away from home whenever we're in Boston. Yes, fast forwarding to today. You yeah, know, fast the, forwarding to today. Schmoy's studio, hotel. He's got it all. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you and I actually, I think it was on that tour that we actually became sort of friends. You know. Anyways. Yeah. I think the deal was your band was filled with smokers and we had one smoker and we did a trade. We traded off for you as the non-smoker and you started riding with us. So we did the tandem van, but you ended up, you and Tim and I, which, you know, and because there was fewer of us, that I think that led to, you know deeper in you know like night-long conversations and stuff like that yeah yeah i think that's how we kind of got into it it was just like you couldn't handle the smoking van anymore and we didn't want a smoker so we just swapped oh yeah okay do you recall that i do remember yeah i also remember uh some a nighttime drive through the mountains with tim's van like kind of caught on fire or something like that (laughs) there was like flames shooting out from underneath and there's some mechanical problems we had to deal with and that sort of thing yeah yeah, having these like busted vans just trying to get around. It's like if it broke down and died, I don't know what we would have done. You know, you like, think about stuff like, like that. Like nobody though. had a credit card or, <laughs> or like a cell phone or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of like a side detail that you didn't get too wrapped up in. You just had to get out there. So that was like, um, that was V card. That was like the mid 90s. Yep. And that was pre uh, your, you know, your, your expedition into going to law school. Yeah. Okay. So then, You'd go to law school. I remember you were studying. I remember, I don't actually remember you being so much going to school, but I remember the period when you were getting ready to take the bar. Yeah. How you kind of disappeared at that point. <laughs> I, I did. I was still actively playing music all through the time I was was yeah. in school. And it was a pretty intense program. And anybody who's been through it will tell you that. It was, you know, it had to go all in. I treated it like my job, you know, because um, if, it was, if you're going to bother doing an endeavor like that, you really got to... To keep the motivation to do the amount of work that's required, you really have to go all in. And, and you know this. You've studied engineering. You can't just approach that lightly. No. That's not something you just kind of – that's not like studying philosophy where you can just kind of sit there and ruminate about all these larger issues. And I'm not slamming that as a as a academic pursuit. I'm just saying like you know, you're trying to learn something very specifically and the bar set pretty high. So you got to kind of – you got to give it your best effort and you have to have the interest obviously has yeah. to be there too. And, and I was interested and motivated to, to pursue that. And, um, but I did play music throughout the whole thing. There was a few times I had to put it on pause and especially that summer where I, you know, every waking moment I was preparing for that, you know, all or nothing exam. You know, if you don't pass that, then that your whole, everything goes to waste. <laughs> but can you take that more than once though? I mean, you can, but I forget what it cost at the time, but I know now it costs about a grand to take the test and they only give it twice a year. So until you pass that and get your license, you really, you essentially can't get a job. Right. You know, you can work as like a temp or like doing some like low level clerk type stuff. Yeah. But you really have to, you have to pass that exam. Even if it's by one point, you just got to get a passing grade. Nobody cares what your score was. You just got to get through it and pass, period. Okay. So you passed. I did pass. And that was... That was, um, you know, there's a lag of about three months between taking the test and getting your results, which is which is tough. And I believe in that time, you and I, you and I were working together, um, you know, doing security. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was that time period. Oh, okay. I All was right. kind of like awaiting my results because I couldn't really move forward until I got that letter that said yes or no. You know, if it says yes, I can try to get a job. If it said no, I had to start studying again. That was an interesting period. Yes. Because uh, working at the Paradise Rock Club. Yes. And uh, 
working security. There's you remember? Do you remember we both worked a show? I was just talking about this last night actually. Uh, there was a Christian ska band. I do. I, I yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, that was like one of one of the stories I always tell from that period about how creepy that was, because there was um, a Christian ska band, and it was packed, and that was like before that was sold out, sold out. Paradise Rock Club, about what a four hundred person. No, it was more than that. More it was, than that? Yeah, it was more like a seven fifty. I guess you can with all the yeah. upstairs. Yeah, so they have the balcony. Too. Yeah, it's like a seven hundred fifty capacity venue in Boston, and. Um, Completely sold out, filled with young Christians. But you and I had never heard of the band. Like, their name yeah. had never even crossed our radar. And uh, the, the most intense thing was at the end of the show, they were, like, explaining their uh, journeys as, uh, you know, missionaries. And then there was this, like, one of the guys just, like, broke down and started crying. Yeah, I remember everybody in the building was, like, holding hands with the person next yes. to them, whether they knew them or not. And he was talking about... That Columbine happened because, you know, in absence of Jesus in people's lives, and you and I were just standing there looking at each other, completely confused. And we, that experience of working at that club together made us, you know, forced us to be parts of scenes that we would otherwise <laughs> never even know existed. And yeah, yeah I, I completely and clearly remember that show just because it was such an odd place for me to be and even weirder to be there with you. <laughs> yeah, we're always Christians. Yeah, I did visit that club just last month. I hadn't been there in a long time, and they've gutted it and, and made it um, so that dressing room area, where, when you and I used to guard the dressing room sometimes, yeah. and just basically essentially sit there and talk, like sit on cases of beer and just wrap out for four hours, yeah. five hours, um, that's now part of the club. They've torn that whole wall down oh, wow. and like moved the stage over and all that. So I was just saying to my friend I was with that I, was, that I used to hang out in that same spot with you, but it's now it's part of the actual floor. Where is there? Do they where are the dressing rooms now? They move it somewhere. Um, I don't know where they are actually, wow. but the the stage. You know how the pole was always in the way. Yeah, they've kicked it over to the left, so it's now it's between the poles. Oh, okay. You know, it That's took them smart. like twenty five yeah. years to figure <laughs> out that everyone hated that. Yeah, that was uh, that was always kind of a discount club, really, man. I mean, they always had shows there that were. I mean, there were there was. I remember Megadeth played there in the eighties. I remember uh, Guns and Roses played there yeah. before they got huge, and. Uh, you know, there were some, like, all-ages hardcore shows there. I want to say Biohazard played there. Yeah, I saw Biohazard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I was there. Yeah. and uh, But I, I remember that always being a little bit of a discount, like, spot. Once I started playing shows, how, you know, myself and, like, being involved in playing shows at that particular venue. Um, like, the ISIS tour went there, I remember, and that was, like, kind of like, oh, yeah, I realize I don't like playing here because of this weird <laughs> pole in the middle of the stage. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so it's cool. I mean, I, I haven't been there in years, but yeah, it's, it seems like that was probably the last time you were there. That was probably like two or three years yeah, ago. Yeah, that was like two, at least two years ago. Cause I remember I came down and checked that out. Yeah. And I was thought, I thought it was strange that ISIS played there instead of the Middle East downstairs. Cause that was like a way cooler. That's the spot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think their booking agent may have had some sort of issue with the management there or whatever, but anyway, so anyway, we're working at this club. You're waiting to get your, um, results from the bar exam yeah so what was that period like for you that was brutal it was just like pure anxiety and just like a forced period of um purgatory you know you just you can't move forward and yeah i mean that's why i was like working at a nightclub you know like yeah. <laughs> that was i needed to pay some bills and i needed to make some money 
but I was in a place where I, you know, I just couldn't go forward yet. And I knew it was only going to be for a little amount of time, but it was still, you know, several months. It wasn't just a couple of weeks of treading water. It, it was some time. And then there's the stress of what if I don't pass? Exactly. Then what? Yeah. Then what? So like, that's why, that was what motivated me to, to give it my all the first time around. I was like, you know, you can't afford to fail this. You just got to make it happen and move forward. And so it was right around Thanksgiving when, when, you know, my results rolled in and I, you know, I went to work like within days of that. You went to work within days of yeah. the passing exam? Yeah. I was like, I, I got sworn in and like a couple of weeks after that. So it was like mid December. Wow. I got sworn in and I started like, yeah, within days of, you know, having a license. So now then you're, you're fully employed, you're an attorney, yeah. you're working in the legal system. Yeah. What was your, uh, like, what was your, your role? Like, were you a prosecutor? Yeah. Or you, okay. Well, what happened with me was um, I was completely flat broke. I had no money whatsoever. So I basically had to grab the first thing that I could possibly get. I didn't have the luxury of, of holding out for my dream job or anything. I was like, get a job and then look for another job while I'm holding down a job. Right. And I managed to score a job at a, a civil firm, meaning I sued people, right? It, on behalf, you know, I sued companies, I sued restaurants, I sued individuals. Uh, and I spent most of my day like in an office wearing a suit in a windowless office where nobody saw me, but I'm wearing a suit, you know, like, <laughs> I could have been naked. It wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> you know, you know? And, uh, you know, just kind of like fighting on the phone with insurance adjusters, like negotiating out, you know, like how we're going to settle this and things like that. Totally different than what I expected. But, you know, I did start getting courtroom experience and I did get to do a trial way before I was qualified to do it. I got to start getting some trial work for basically cases that were like certain losers. So there wasn't really any pressure. It was like, yeah, give it to the new guy, let him go in there. And, you know, if he, if he makes mistakes and it doesn't work out, it's okay. You know, so that was actually pretty invaluable experience. Although, um, I had no guidance or no mentoring or anything like that. So a lot, like more mistakes than were necessary were probably made. So it was definitely rocky. You know, you're getting into this, you're jumping in the ring with like going up against somebody who's got like 30 years experience and yeah. you're like, don't stand a chance, <laughs> right. you know, but everybody's got to have that first day. Everybody's sure. got to start at the beginning. And, um, while there were some good parts of it, I could tell that, you know, this is going to be a short term gig for me. I'm going to get some experience. So I, I promised myself very quickly. I promised myself a year. It's like, I'll give myself one year yeah. and I'm going to shop. I'm, I'm definitely going to like look for other things. And where I did want to head in the direction was, is, um, you know, I had applied at the district attorney's office to be a prosecutor and, you know, they're notorious for like not getting back to you and, you know, just kind of giving you the runaround. But I heard from them like months and months after I thought, you know, I was yeah. forgotten about. I figured they threw out my resume and I got a random call one day and everything happened really quickly. I went in for an interview, got the job, got sworn in and, you know, quit my other job. Like I was very excited to quit, you know, yeah. the job I was in. I was, I was happy to leave. I was as happy to leave that as I was to move on. And the reason that I wanted to go into that is because a lot of people ask me that too. Like, why did you want to do that? You know, why did you want to like send people to jail? And why did you want to like kind of work with cops and stuff like that? Because yeah. I don't know, you know, have a huge history of like loving police and authority and things like that. People ask me that pretty frequently. And, and at first I didn't really have the best answer for it, but I, I think what was going on, at least in my head, is, is when I was still a student, I worked for a public defender. 
like kind of interned, you know, I helped, I helped do a lot of research on cases. You know, I didn't go into court or I went into court, but I didn't go in front of a judge or argue or anything like that. I did all the grunt research work, you know, looking up stuff in books. This is before you could even do it online. You know, like I do like get dusty books in the library and like photocopy stuff, (laughs) you know, like old school. And, uh, I would do all that grunt work for somebody else, you know? And, um, and I was working with a guy who had been in the office many, many years and he handled murder cases and, and, uh, he was defending a dude that like set on a house and killed, set, set a house on fire and killed a whole family. And I was looking through all the photos of like these charred bodies. Wow. And then he was defending a man who, who, um, who raped young children in, yeah. in, in one instance had raped like a baby. Oh, Jesus. And man. I saw the photos of that yeah. and I'll never forget them. He, he threw them in front of me on a desk and goes, yeah, there's your education right there, you know? And you know, that's like burned in my brain. You can't unsee you can't it. See you can't that, unsee yeah. it. And I saw this thing that I never wanted to see. And, and here I am working these hours, you know, like, so what's to try with, to help the guy out. But what's up with that, man? Like, oh, here's your education. Like what, did, did this guy have issues with what he was doing for a living too or what? Maybe, what was his deal? I don't know. Like, I don't know. I never got to know him well enough. Like I know that his, his whole take about feeling okay about his type of work was, you know, and, and I agree with this is that everybody charged with a crime, the government charges you with a crime, you have the right to have a, a very zealous and valid defense. Right. Like somebody has to go to bat for you strongly. They don't get to make the decision like this guy's guilty, so I'm not going to try hard. Everybody gets the right, you know, so if you still get convicted and sent to prison, then it was done properly. Right. You know, right, he's right. De- like a strong defense was played. In my, you know, my, my crappy sports analogy would be like, you know, if you're on a basketball team, you don't really feel like it's a great win if the other team just stood there and you ran past them and just, you know, yeah. scored at will. You know, you, if you win a hard fought game and, and you win, you know, then that's, that's what you were looking for. So, I mean, in this instance, like everybody has that right. You have the right to have somebody vigorously represent you in every ethical way, you know, without breaking the rules and lying and all sure. that stuff, like without cheating, you know, within the bounds of the rule, everyone has that right. And that's how he felt good about it. I'm upholding a system. I didn't really think that that was going to be my station in life. At first I was thinking, you know, you know, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to help people, you know, protect their rights. And it sounds like a really noble thing. I'm going to help them protect their rights against, you know, corrupt government forces and things like this. Yeah. Um, But then the reality of that is, you know, you're, you're defending a lot of people who you don't even like that you can't even look at, you know what I mean? And the baby rapist was an extreme kind of an example but most of the people did in fact do what they were accused of and probably did deserve some type of either punishment or some type of help, you know, be put in a drug rehab facility right, or something right, like right. that. Um, but that wasn't necessarily what I thought I wanted to do at that point. I was like, I feel like I'm trying to help people, you know, dodge responsibility, dodge consequences, you know. Like, so there was that. There was that piece of it. And then when I started thinking more and more about like, you know, who are the victims of crime? There's people who get hurt because other people are criminals. They steal, they rob people, they rape people, you know, use violence. And I was thinking like, those are the people I wanted to try to assist, that I wanted to try to help. So you get this noble idea on the other end of like, I want to lock up bad guys. I want to, I want to put them on trial, hold them accountable on behalf of the public and, you know, lock them up. And over time you see that that's not really what you're doing either. You know, like you find yourself in the position of if you have evidence against somebody, you go after them. Even if you don't personally think that they did anything, there's some evidence. It's not up to you. You got to put it to a jury and let them decide. 
And so there's a moral dilemma there, too. And you also saw that the, ins- the inner workings of the system, and, and people already do commonly know this, but a lot don't. So one of the things that I, I, ha- I end up pointing out to people is that, you know, when you see a trial on TV or you watch Law & Order, that's rep- the trial is like less than 1% of all cases that go into the court system. You know, the vast majority are all plea bargains. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. So okay. so what happens in the plea bargain is just like what it sounds like. You cut a deal. Yeah. So the person who's supposed to be in trouble ends up getting off much lighter because they agree to acknowledge, you know, I did this. Right. And right. so they don't force the state to prove the case against them. They, in exchange for that, you get a you get a nicer deal. So you don't get held fully accountable. And the person who gets left out in the cold is like the victim. Yeah. So like somebody, you know, sticks a gun in your face and takes your wallet, you know, they're going to end up getting a lighter punishment than you as the victim would would like to see. You're the one who's going to be dissatisfied. So it's a big compromise all the way down the line. Though. Yeah. I mean, you simply yeah. could not put every single person on trial. You know what I mean? The court system would break down. <laughs> they would, the backlog would immediately overwhelm the entire system because people have a right to a speedy trial. Oh, you know yeah, what I mean? If right. they can't put you on trial quickly because there's a backlog, that's the, the system's fault, not yours. And you have that right. It's a constitutional right. So, you know, it's a necessary evil and it's not a perfect system. But you saw people just like all over the place, you know, kind of kind of walking and getting like an extremely light penalty. And it was dissatisfying to everybody. So you kind of started seeing a lot of that. Then you saw, you know, and this is something I learned after I was fully involved in it was that, you know, the whole system's not about finding out truth. It's about do you have enough evidence to prove somebody guilty? Yes or no. You know what I mean? It's like if I put you on trial for any type of a crime, you know, it's like it boils down to I have enough evidence to prove it or no. The the question isn't did you, you know, did you really do it? Right. In other words, if if you're found not guilty, they don't go out and run out for the real person. You know, well, who really did it then? That's not the question. It's like you the evidence either supports your conviction or it doesn't. So it's guilty, not guilty. It's not guilty and innocent. Oh, wow. So, so innocent like, and not guilty yeah. are two different things. Yeah. They're not yeah. synonymous. Oh, wow. So it's like this real procedural sort of standardized yes or no sort of thing. And it's like either you're not guilty, but that doesn't mean you're innocent, just like you said. Absolutely. Like O.J. Simpson, you know, he yeah. gets a not guilty verdict and he tells everyone, like, the jury found me innocent. Finding you innocent would be like, oh, here's the real killer. It's not yeah. OJ. That would right. be being found innocent. Yeah. That's an entirely different thing. Not guilty means the jury could have been like 85% sure it was you, but they had like this small level of doubt. Because remember, the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. So if there's any kind of doubt and it's still reasonable, you got it by law, you got to let the person go. It's got to be a not guilty. And all 12 jury members could agree, I think he did it. But the evidence just doesn't support it. So there's like at this point, there's like a certain level of disillusionment going on with the, you know, this whole system. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you go into it thinking that you, you're helping people. You're doing good. As cliche and corny as it sounds like, you know, I didn't want to sell products and I didn't care about profit margins. I wanted to do a good job and I wanted to help people in the process. You know, that's what I was sort of hoping to do. And, you know, I've seen both sides of the fence now and <laughs> neither of them were all that satisfying. They really weren't. And as much as I love the subject and the topic, how it plays out, you know, in a courtroom or in reality, you know, ended up being something that 
like most things in life, you don't know until you're entrenched in it and you're doing it. it. Does it, does it match up with, you know, what your perception of it was beforehand? You know, like you've done extensive traveling in a band, you know, it looks glamorous. <laughs> like some kid who's picking up a guitar like today and wants to be in a band and tour probably has no conception of how difficult it is and how time consuming and, you know, like what really needs to go into that to make that be a cool thing. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah. So at some point you decided to leave that line of work. Yeah. All right. And, uh, you know, so what, you know, what, how did that come, come about? Yeah. Like, that's, um, I had mentioned to you earlier, like, you know, education was always something that was on the table for me. It just happened to be, you know, the timing of when I finished college that, there was no jobs in education. Like everybody in the field was like a mid-career professional. There were no retirements. Nobody was going anywhere. They were all like 20 years in. They were going to ride it out to their 30 years and retire. And among those people were like my dad, <laughs> you know, like, and he was the one who like kind of broke this news to me. And, um, you know, both my parents are educators, both like retired teachers today. And, you know, so that was something that was always so like um, something I was interested in for sure, but I wasn't so sure like, what would I teach? What do I even know anything about? You know, like when I was, when I was younger. Right. And so at that time, that was sort of an idea to be kicked down the road. And maybe I'll visit that later on in my life when I'm older, more experienced, more detached from, from, you know, high school students, for instance, you know, if you're 22 years old trying to teach 18 year olds, there's no credibility there. Yeah, and I've seen that, you know, fast forwarding to today, I've seen that many times. And, and I kind of intuited that I didn't want to do that. So, um, while I was practicing, I had the opportunity to teach a couple of like night classes at the college level, you know, just at the local community college. I taught like a criminal procedure class. I taught a constitutional law class and five minutes into the very first class I taught, like I, I arrived, you know, I knew this is what I wanted to do. Right. And so that, um, you know, to take a long story and shorten it somewhat, um, I started looking around, you know, I got, I took the teacher's exam and I, I got certified for that. And, um, something opened up at a high school, high school level that I was interested in. And when I went in for the interview, they said, you know, we have a, you know, unlike many other schools, we have a, like a law program. We have a class that's about, you know, law and American mm -hmm. legal system. And, you know, I was told at the interview, like, you know, you'd be a perfect candidate. The guy we have is retiring and you would be perfect to take it over. And that's what happened. And so I was extremely fortunate to kind of marry like two of my, my interests, you know, education and law. And, and so, so that's where I am today. I mean, it's been 10 years now. <laughs> 10 years. Wow. 10 years. Yeah. This is my 10th year. Huh. The, um, you were doing some like sort of night, uh, you had this work that you were doing. I'm not sure where it happened. It was either when you were a lawyer or when you were in education where you were dealing with, uh, you know, kids who are in trouble and that yeah. sort of thing. Now, what, what phase was that fit into? Yeah, into that's, story? that's been in my education career. I, I started doing that kind of early on in my edu education career and I've done it up until pretty recently. In fact, they just asked me back in January, but schedule-wise, it didn't, you know, schedule-wise rather, it, it didn't fit. Um, so I, I told them I wanted to come back, but the, the time slot they needed me for did not pan out. And, and what that was, it's a, it's an alternative school that I was teaching at night in Boston for inner city kids. And many of them were coming to class with, you know, they're incarcerated. They're in, you know, a youth home and they come with an ankle bracelet on. So if they like 
skipped out on class or they're out there, that's like a police matter. <laughs> you know, that's like an escape situation or something. <laughs> so, so a lot of these kids – um, but what I found was a lot of them were really cool. They might have been complete gangsters out on the street or straight-out drug dealers – but a lot of the kids were pretty cool when you boil it down and talk directly to them at their level and, you know, without condescending to them or trying to be cool for them, just like talking to them on a human level, right. give them a, give them a little bit of respect and, you know, get a two way conversation going. And, um, I, I wasn't so sure if I was going to like doing it or not. And at times it was definitely difficult. Well, how, how did you even get to this? Like, how did this come up? Like, I, I actually lived very close to where the school was. And I'm trying to even remember how I got alerted to just like, you know, I was just looking for maybe putting in a couple extra hours and getting some more teaching experience. It was early in my, my education career. And I figured it would be good because, you know, the high school I was, I was teaching at, and I still do, was like 99% white. And I was sort of looking to maybe get a little experience with diversity. Sure. And, you know, so now I've like, this school, like in the city, it's, um, their whole model was like a second chance, you know, like these are kids who couldn't cut it in a regular high school, couldn't pass the standardized test to graduate, couldn't stay out of jail. <laughs> you know, they, a lot of the girls had babies already. Wow. So one girl had three kids, Damn, man. Nine, what age 19, you know, like, like... a lot of them were like 19 and 20, Wow. you know? So everywhere, like 17, 18, 19, yeah. 20 was sort of the ages I was servicing. And I taught a bunch of different things. I taught a version of the law class to okay. start, but I also taught them English literature, history, U.S. and world history, um, you know, psychology, sociology, like whatever they wanted me to teach. Aside from math, I did it. And so I kind of – I got to explore some other topics myself. So I got to grow a little bit. But, you know, the, these kids had – a million and one stories where their lives came from, you know, yeah, <laughs> that was like, imagine. it just kept going and going. I made, I made like a, I compiled a list of all the different things just from one of the years there. And it was huge. And they were all like, you know, everything from, you know, this kid ran over a homeless guy in his car and killed him to, you know, this kid got a life sentence, <laughs> you know, like, and those are some of the more extreme examples, but then there was just all kinds of things that these kids had going on, you know, when girls living in a car with their dad, you know, like they, like they, some of them were straight out, you know, strung out on heroin. Damn. Yeah. One kid came to class and he said he, he had died the day before his heart stopped. He was dead. His mother found him unresponsive and they got his heart going again. He came to school the next day, <laughs> you know, like in those, those are just a few examples of the kinds of kids that I was, that I was, um, interacting with but there was something about it like i always had the option to not go back because it was right. just like a semester by semester thing yeah and i always just kept going back well how many days a week was this i would do it t depending on the semester two okay. or three nights a week but they were longer classes like two three hour classes oh, so that their, their their school week would be like maybe two or three nights a week but for like longer longer duration they would well though, for mike whatever class i was teaching yeah. say met monday wednesday friday okay. but they'd take other courses they were still going five days a week, but okay. all the classes started at like two thirty in the afternoon and went up to like eight o'clock at night. So they were supposed to be working during the day, but some of the kids would be late for class because that's they were getting out of bed at you know three in the afternoon, Damn. you know, playing Xbox all night or whatever they were doing, you know, doing some shady stuff. <laughs> some of them had jobs, but a lot of them didn't. So how many years did you do this? Or seven, seven years. Yeah, seven and. 
you know, I, I wish I was still there right now. I did try to work it out to be there right now, but this semester didn't work. I took a little break because we had our daughter last year. Yeah. And so when uh, she was born at Christmas time and that was right coincided with the semester break. So I, I told him I, I wanted to take some time off to, you know, do, do my family obligations. And then, um, yeah, so I wasn't able to return, but, um, uh, I probably will end up back there at some point. It was, it was definitely interesting. And I've come across some of those people, like after they've graduated, I've run into them really? in weird, different places. Huh. What's like, that like? like? It's, it's kind of, well, the, the couple that I ran into actually went on to do well. Oh, good. We're doing pretty well for themselves. Yeah. So that was nice to hear. But I've also seen in the paper a few months ago, a kid died. I have to assume that he overdosed. And, you know, like I said, another one of my students got convicted of murder, got a life sentence when he was 19, you know, and good kid too. He, I thought he was a nice kid. I mean, he dressed like a gang member and was a gang member, but he was a respectful kid. He was smart and charismatic. And, you know, he lost his cool during a drug deal that didn't go his way. And just, you know, shoots the guy five times. You know, he's 19 years old and he's done. His whole life is going to be in prison now. Yeah, definitely with a murder rap like that. Yeah, and it's just such a heavy thing. And, and you know, and I just think back, like, he was actually a fugitive and was still coming to class. So he had been in my class for two weeks and they were looking for him on a murder warrant. And this kid was coming to my class and he had said a couple of things that were sort of cryptic, which made sense later after he got really? arrested. He's like, like, what, what kind of things he, he, would say? he was saying things like, um, you know, when I'm in my neighborhood, I keep my hood up and I just kind of keep a real low profile. And I didn't think too much of it at the time. He had made remarks along those lines. And then when I found out what he got arrested for, it was pretty heavy. It's surprising that there are any good stories, like any anyone's <laughs> life actually did turn around. So what are the examples of some of the kids who actually turned out okay? Like, like a kid who ends up going on to like a community college and then maybe even converted that into a four-year school. Oh, cool. Or a kid who went on to do some type of an internship. Like they could access programs through the city and do like some type of internship and actually land a job where they could support themselves. That was a success. If, it, if the kid managed to not fail, that was the success. You know, and, and it, he came out in different ways. And some of these kids were like intelligent kids, but had severe drug problems or right. intelligent enough, but didn't have an adult in their life who had it together. You know, for example, one kid was, you know, he, he had a lot of things going for him, but lived with like an alcoholic aunt. He had no yeah. parents and, yeah. you know, like he had no supervision or guidance whatsoever. And he was trying to sort out the world at age 17 you know, <laughs> so it's like no wonder he was into like problems with the law and trouble yeah. with drugs and all that stuff because no, nobody there to help him. So you saw a lot of that stuff. Then you just saw some kids that, you know, I, I would never write a kid off as hopeless, but you know, some kids that they weren't taking responsibility for their own lives. So I don't know where they thought they were going. Like them being in school wasn't advancing their lives in any, any way. They may as well have just been working and earning money. Damn, it's heavy, man. So the another another big project we were talking about was uh, your uncle, and uh, you know how it sort of connects. Like your uncle's, um, well, I'll let you tell a story. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it's um, it's my uncle's brother, but I consider him my uncle because like he's part of my family. You know, I I have Thanksgiving with him, and you know he's I'm in constant contact with him. So he's he is I consider him. He is definitely family. And, uh, you know, but he's my uncle by marriage's brother. So like, he's not, you know, by blood, a relative, but he, you know what I mean? He's part of my family. Right. 
he um he's 70 years old and back when he was 21 you know, he had been in trouble with the law since he was like a young kid. He had a, a huge juvenile arrest record, like in the 1950s, breaking into stores, you know, stealing cars, like you name it, like hustling people on the streets of Boston as a young kid, you know, and and that's just kind of what he fell into. He grew up in Roxbury and, and he was like the excitement of going into, you know, what's today like government center that was like you know, where all the sailors and hookers and stuff hung out and there's all the stores, you know, going back to a, a time period that's long gone in, in the city of Boston. And he, um, he had, he had done time in, um, he had been sent to, you know, reform school, which doesn't exist in Massachusetts anymore. We have facilities and stuff, but the traditional like reform school. And he, he got sentenced to that. And when he was in there, you know, he has many stories of like, these like horrible abuses that he and other kids in there suffered. And you got to remember a lot of those kids were in there for either really minor things or things just like being a runaway. Yeah, the kid didn't right. get along with their parents mm -hmm. or, or wouldn't listen to their parents. And so they'd get put in there for, you know, what's today called a status offense. Like if you were an adult, it wouldn't be a crime, but you're a kid, you know, you can't just run away from home. You have right. to, you have to legally, you can legally be forced to go back home sure. to be with your parents. And so there was a lot of those kids in there too. But, you know, his stories of, um, you know, the harm and abuse that kids suffered in those places are just incredible and horrific. And he talks about, um, you know, I've interviewed him at length. And in fact, one day, a couple of years back, we went back and, you know, it's, it's been closed since the 70s. But we went out to, to uh, I believe it was Westboro, Massachusetts, where the, the Lyman School for Boys was located. And the campus is still there, and the buildings are still there. It looks like almost like a college campus. And that, that's where he was. Uh, he and he was there. And, and some of the cottages, like called them cottages, they look kind of like college dorms almost, like old right. brick. And, um, you know, they're all abandoned and shut down. And some of them are overgrown by trees and stuff. And we, we actually entered into a couple of the buildings. I'm sure we would have gotten in trouble for that if anybody noticed. But we took some photos, and he was kind of – he hadn't been there in 50 years or wow. longer, you know, and it was having these memory flashbacks. And we, and we did a lot of talking about what that system was like. And, and one of his major points was once I went into that system, there was no turning back. Like we have an, a system that is interested in, in kind of um, keeping you in it. And he said, when I went to reform school, I learned all kinds of criminal behavior that I didn't know about before. He said it was like going to like criminal college. I, he said, you know, I did these low level punk kid kind of things. But by the time I finished reform school, I knew how to do all these like higher level, sophisticated criminal activity things, which of course I, you know, he put to use the moment he got out, you know, now he gets yeah. out and he's like, you know, later on in his teens and starts reaching his early twenties and starts going to like, you know, conquered Concord prison and, you know, um, doing time at some of the, you know, adult facilities, doing a couple short stints here and there. And then he said when he got there, you know, like half the people he already knew from reform school, oh, wow. so, yeah, <laughs> you know, just, so it's just kind of like the graduating class yeah. together, you know, like these are the people that were coming through. They were coming out much worse than when they went in. And that's the way the system had been set up. Um, you know, it was graduating the, the adult criminals of tomorrow at the, at the child level. So he, he's done a lot of talking about that. And like I mentioned, I've interviewed him like many, many times, many hours of recorded conversation right. like you and I are doing right now. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm very familiar with his story and what we're doing together with my legal background and his 
his legal background from an entirely different perspective is, you know, we've, we've had these numerous long conversations about, about law, about justice, about the prison system, about the, how they're tied in together, what they, how they've evolved and what they are today. And, you know, over the last several years, we've been working together jointly, you know, writing, you know, I write a lot of stuff. He gives a lot of thoughts, you know, I incorporate a lot of his interviews and we're putting it down in writing, you know, so we're essentially writing, writing a, what we're going to eventually publish as a book, you know, to put that out there as, um, not so much a compendium of war stories from prison because he certainly has those. Yeah. And I'll get into that in just a little bit. Like some of the things that he, you know, he knows about and experienced directly. Um, but to kind of show, like to show people, like, this is how, this is how a system has been constructed that does is very interested in getting people and keeping people, not rehabilitating them and turning them back out to society as, you know, law abiding, good people, but rather keeping them in the system. Do you think that a component of that sort of motivation is to continue the sort of uh, commerce that surrounds keeping people incarcerated? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, in the, the modern phrase for that would be the prison industrial complex. Right. Most people are probably familiar with the term military industrial complex. You know, look at all of the private corporations and business interests that profited from you know, fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, that war ends, they're no longer making these huge profits. Well, the same could be said of the prison system. You know, it's a given that, um, you know, prisons do need vendors and they do need all these services and they need to be constructed and built from, you know, <laughs> yeah. from nothing. And, you know, there's a lot of money wrapped up in that, a lot of government and taxpayer money wrapped up in that. And if, the interest was rehabilitating people to make the public safer and to assist those individuals to become, you know, taxpayers and family people and law abiding citizens. Then, you know, the industry behind prisons and the prison system will decrease. You know, people will lose jobs and lose contracts that are very lucrative. So there's a small amount of people making a lot of money at everybody else's expense. Right. So, so your, your point about how commerce is, you know, intertwined yeah. with it is spot on. And we talk about that a lot. Yeah. Well, one, one of the other things specifically is, uh, you know, um, you know, the fact that hemp is illegal, like in our, and I mean, hemp has been a, historically has been a, a crop domestically used for cloth and paper and whatnot. And it's illegal because they, you know, wrap it up with, uh, you know, cannabis being illegal, which is also ridiculous as well, since of all the medicinal value of that, you know, and, you know, whatever. The people have their own uses for it, but there's clearly a medical use for marijuana. And what I'm interested in specifically is hemp, because that, if that was legal, if both of those substances were legal, there would be, you know, another complete industry could spring up in this country, which would also employ a lot of people, which would have like a lot more of a positive impact on our society. You know, like in the other room, I have my brand new Datsusura um, battle pack, which is a, a hemp, you know, micro, antimicrobial uh, mixed martial arts gear bag. And uh, that company, Datsusura, is all their all their gear and all their you know apparel is all fight equipment. And it's, uh, it's all made out of hemp, you know, and it's hemp is like antimicrobial, you know, it's a quickly, you know, the, the plant itself can grow anywhere under different climates. It's stronger than cotton, you know, it's, it's paper. You can make food out of it. You can, you know, make, you know, fuel, you can make building materials out of it, but 
what all happened was was the when the cotton industry decided that hemp was too much of like a uh, you know a threat to their their dollars, and that's how it all became illegal. And then roll that into the legal system. So any any sort of this war on drugs fantasy is going on is keeping more people for relatively minor infractions incarcerated. Right. So there's more bodies going through the system. Right. It, they have powerful lobbies and they pass laws. And a good example, it all started here in New York, which is mandatory minimums for drug offenses. You know, so somebody's got, you know, the, and you've heard of the three strikes laws. It's these like inflexible mandatory minimums. Like you have to get this penalty. We can't give you less. Even a sympathetic judge cannot give you less than, you know, X amount of years in, in prison. And in Massachusetts, a good example of it would be, you know, they developed what's called the school zone law, like a thousand feet around a thousand feet zone that surrounds a school of any type. You know, it could be a preschool facility, you know, tutoring facility. It doesn't matter. And then a hundred feet around parks and playgrounds. And that sounds great politically because it sounds like it's protecting kids. Like, yeah, we don't want drug dealers selling to kids. So give them a harsh penalty. But... When you look at the application of the law, there's no requirement whatsoever that you needed to sell to a child. So if you sold me weed and you lived, you know, 500 feet down the street from a school and it's 2 a.m. like in August yeah. when there's no students there's no or school. kids yeah. anywhere nearby, yep. that would qualify. So just the, the bad luck of being, you know, geographically located close to any type of school. And if you go into a city, the entire city's a school zone. Like in Boston, you'd have to be like on the tarmac at Logan Airport yeah. to be more than a thousand feet away from from a public park or playground or any type of a school. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. and then yeah. colleges are omitted. Okay. <laughs> Weird. So, so yeah, like so. My point is that you know when you see how these are applied, they're inflexible and they're designed to bring more people to jail for longer amounts of time because there are business interests wrapped up in those, you know, and and um. You know, your points about hemp are well well taken. You know, like think of who would be losing income and who would be gaining income if your idea, which makes complete sense, ever happened. Yeah. You know, so the people who are making the profit are doing everything in their power to hang on to that. But what's the cost of that? You're putting people in prison who don't need to be there um, or the ones who do need to be there. You're keeping them way longer than necessary at huge expense. Too. I don't know about New York, but in Mass, it's the average is forty five thousand a year to incarcerate one person. Wow! So you get some guy, you know, you stick him in there for a year or two. Um, you know, was it worth that money? <laughs> you know, were there were there other better things we could have done to prevent that behavior and save a whole lot of money? And the answer is yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, and also there's there's just even even the decision making that the government's deciding like what you. Well, the thing that I have a problem with is like. You know, if you you know you want to smoke weed or whatever, that's it's illegal. But it's not illegal for you to eat genetically modified food. You know what I mean? You, you, it's cool. It's totally cool to like, right. you know, force down your throat all this crap that they try to sell you. Fast foods, McDonald's, you know, uh, high fructose corn syrup is completely legal. Like all these like sugary, you know, completely life destroying, you know, concoctions that people eat. And drink every day. And the fact that alcohol is legal too. And tobacco. Know, tobacco. <laughs> you know, all that stuff. The fact that one of those substances is, is illegal and the other substance is not illegal. Is, is, is it, whatever. You know what I'm saying. One, one, is, one is cool and one's not cool. And the government decides that. 
and it's almost arbitrary, you know? And the thing is with alcohol, it's like, you know, why, why not make out, can continue to make alcohol illegal too, you know, like they did in prohibition, you know, it's, it's like, to me, it's baffling and it just, something doesn't seem, um, like there's, there's a lot of truth that's not being passed on to the public. Right. And the, and the biggest justification, which there's no evidence that to support is that, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug. Like you try weed, you're going to eventually, it's going to lead you straight to heroin and you're going to overdose and die. And I don't think most people believe that. <laughs> I mean, know, I think it, that the two cultures are actually quite different, you know, like being exposed to like, you know, the people who are into like drugs such as marijuana, uh, marijuana. I feel like are almost in a different sort of culture than people who deal with like you know, harder stuff, like more destructive drugs, like, you know, heroin or cocaine or whatever, you know, like the psychedelic culture and the sort of marijuana culture are completely separate from like that sketchy, like methamphetamine, <laughs> you know, like biker, like, you know, trip, Oh, I agree. You know I, mean? I agree completely. Most people who I know who are very, you know, pro legalization of not just marijuana, but drugs in general, like nobody thinks that the, most addictive drugs, you know, like heroin, obviously, should be legal. I, I have yet to come across somebody who said, like, legalize everything across the board, no restrictions whatsoever. I haven't heard somebody say that. I'm sure those people are out there. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, it comes down to personal choice, too. The, you know, the government does allow all kinds of horrible things, like, you know, food and cigarettes, like you were saying, alcohol to be sold to people and it's their choice to consume it or not. You just educate them that this is bad for you, but if you want to do it anyway, that's your choice. And you know, why isn't marijuana one of those things? I personally don't want to smoke it, but if other people do, then that should be cool. The thing is though, is, is, is the non psychoactive aspects of the, of the cannabis plant, which are, there's like, you know, like hemp in general. Like I bought like a hemp protein powder and it was like $50 because the hemp hearts had to be imported from Canada. Now, why can't we grow it here in this country? Put some, an American farmer, you know, have him start growing hemp hearts or whatever. And then you have another industry, another, another avenue of income for someone who is a farmer, you know. Right, Which but then is, somebody who gets busted to do, you know, who who busts people into sting operations, and you know has all this like high level government funded training to you know break up drug rings and marijuana rings will will no longer have that as a position. Well, the other thing too is <laughs> is uh, you know that there there are plenty of other drug related things such as breaking up meth labs or something <laughs> like that. But I mean, I feel like law enforcement might think that's too much of a risk to to go and you know rate a meth lab because there's like some guy with like you know i'm pro meth lab it promotes <laughs> promotes science you know kids should learn that stuff well you know meth has been around <laughs> since like world war one I. I mean mm. you know that, that's like it was like a military like substance you know like uh, you know japanese fighter pilots and whatnot would get high on meth you know right and cocaine was legal until i don't know what year it was you probably know the backstory of that i think like that was legal up until like sometime in the 60s wasn't it I don't know. It was. More, I remember seeing or reading about that, and it was way more recent than I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. It was like really like like it was legal like like within the last like forty years. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. I mean, even LSD was legal until I think the seventies. I mean, I'm probably yeah. talking to my ass right now. I have no idea. <laughs> like, you know, but I think I think that that's the case. You know, someone will have to like Google that and you know figure out whether or not I'm telling the truth. <laughs> yeah, somebody out there listening to this, just Google it now. Prove us wrong. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, looking at 
you know, what the government decides to regulate and not regulate is directly tied in with business interests. And to tie that back into the prison system, I mean, think about how many, the money that's being made um, every time they construct a prison, um, you know, the money that's allocated towards like all the, the um, you know, the enforcement of these laws that send people to prison. I mean, there's, there's billions of dollars. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And every year we spend more on prisons than we do on higher education. I mean, that's, that's a reported fact. And, and we keep spending more and more money on locking people up in a way that, that doesn't end up helping them in the long run. You know, there's all this talk of rehabilitation, but, you know, when you look at like a, you know, national recidivism rates, it's failing. You know, people are coming out and then within a year or two, um, at the most three, they end up going back in. Yeah. I and mean, doing I... more time. They just, they come out and they have nothing. So they go back to exactly what they know how to do. Stealing, robbing. Yeah selling drugs, whatever it may be, because they don't have any kind of a skill. Now they have a criminal record, so getting a job's that much more yeah, tough. bias against them from that, you know, from yeah. their record. Yeah, getting a job today with a college degree and no criminal record is hard. Yeah. So throw in a criminal conviction, and you've just wiped out, like, any public service job, yep. any job working with kids. Like, you just, like, you know, slam the door on a ton of different career paths. And so imagine how difficult it would be starting from, from that point to try to, you know, launch a career and pay for an apartment and a family and a car and insurance and all that stuff. You know, I won't say it's impossible, but it's going to be extremely difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's very rare, you know, I mean, I know a lot, some of these like Hollywood dudes, you know, like, like, uh, what's his name there? Danny Trejo or whatever. He's a criminal. <laughs> but he's like, I mean, how many yeah, guys are like right. going to turn that into a Hollywood career? You sure. know what I mean? But, but yeah, man, it's just like. Being in jail keeps you a criminal. You know, I think that's always been the perception. And like, you know, some of the, a lot of the reading I've done, you know, about people who've been incarcerated, it's, it's a, it's a failure, you know, it's like a failure. That's a high probability of failure that you're going to be able to be socialized back in society after spending a significant amount of time in jail. Right. Well, especially when you start bringing in things like tools that they use, like solitary confinement. I mean, uh, we were discussing this earlier today, you know, like if you walk into, like, I have a little touch of claustrophobia. Like if I'm in a small bathroom or a small room, yeah. like I definitely, you know, I feel like that, that plays on my mental state. And, uh, I recently visited a prison, you know, just a couple of weeks back and, um, I went into their solitary cells, it, you know, versus the regular cells, which were still really confining, but the solitary cell, um, and some of those things, they even double bunk. They'll put two guys in those. And, um, very quickly I could see where you would start, um, losing a grip on reality and starting to, uh, you know, like say you had a complete claustrophobic freak out or yeah. just some like, you know, just the isolation of it is what really plays on people's psyche as well. You know, just like, have you ever spent 24 hours just totally alone? People do start to, you know, kind of talk to themselves yeah. or, or then, you know, multiply that by a week, then three weeks, a month. Like, I don't know anybody who's ever not spoken to another human for a month. You know, but um, I could imagine that you would start to lose grip on reality and you have fluorescent lights on 24-7 yeah. and you don't know what time of day it is. Yep. You don't have any natural light. Um, and I'm not saying that there's people who don't need to get thrown in there. If you're in a prison and you're attacking people, attacking guards, you need to be put in there, but not for that long. Yeah. You know, people long. chill out after a pretty short amount of time. Well, I mean, even as a, just as a primate, you know, like primates are a social animal, you know, we're mostly chimpanzee, you know what I mean? And the isolation aspects of that, you know, definitely impact you negatively. 
and also being away from the sunlight, like you were mentioning, you don't get that vitamin D infusion that you're required. I mean, even like we're free men living in a free society and in the winter time and you, you're spending all your time inside, there's like that winter depression that sets in yeah. because you don't see the sunlight, you know, right. you're going to a job, you know, you arrive there, it might still be dark. I mean, I know when I work in an office, I get there early. And I leave after four, and in the winter time, it's yeah. dark. So you're not outside during sunlight hours. Yeah. And but if like, I had to, if I had, if I didn't have the option to step out of the office and go and, and get a cup of coffee or something to eat, if I, that was taken away from me and I had to stay indoors under fluorescent lights and not see the sunlight, and on a physiological level too, just not having that vitamin D infusion, I would, it, it would be, it would take a toll. Like physically on me yeah. as well, and, and imagine not having any human interaction too. Yeah, I mean, and many of them will like, you know, if a guard come, you get your food brought to you. Right. You know, we'll try to like throw urine at them or yeah. bite them or just get some negative attention, just any attention, just to have a human interaction. And um, and and Bobby, who I've been working with, he, he'll you know he did five straight years in there, and Oof. he. Um, he had done other much shorter stretches, but he did five continuous years in there. And funny enough, he used that time to write his appeal of his case, which which was overturned and, you know, led to his release. So, I mean, it was fortunate in that way. But that time he spent in there, um, you know, he can attest firsthand about how it makes you lose your mind. It makes a sane man lose his faculties, lose grip on reality. Like, he'd have um, – you ever read The Room, Hubert Sel- oh, yeah. Selby yeah, Jr.? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, that's all spot on. Yeah. You know, like, that's that's like – dead on for like you have these violent revenge fantasies against your captors you know like he he he's given interviews where he talked about fantasizing about like chopping the guard's head off and like bowling it down the hall and laughing about it you know you start to like lose this grip on reality and and you start to you know hear voices and everything's like under a, a microscope like if you could hear a drip of a faucet like that's all you can hear and you end up fixating on it and it ends up like driving you mad or if like somebody down the hall is yelling, like it just, it's maddening and everything's just amplified times a million and, and you can't get out of it. And you know, deep in your head that you can't, you can't get out of it. It's not a choice to walk away from it or to shut it out. And, um, what's really strange talking about people failing once they leave prison, yeah. if your sentence expires while you're in there, they let you straight out. You go from that box to the street oh. So, I mean, a very like cliche example would be, you know, if you have a, like take a dog like a pit bull and you have it in a cage and you mistreat it and you don't feed it and you beat it every day with a stick, then one day you just open the cage door and go ahead. Yeah, it's a death so, machine. So like when it goes and tears someone's face off, like instantly, you shouldn't be too surprised. And, and that's what happens, you know, or they'll take that person with no transition whatsoever and drop them back in with everyone else and they can't handle yeah, it. And it's just overstimulation and, and all this like, you know, sort of pent up energy, this negative energy being locked up for so long. Yeah. And I guess what, what we're looking at, not just with solitary, but with like prison in general is like, how much is enough? Like if you, let's say you robbed somebody, you know, you just like pulled a knife on someone and, you know, took their credit card, <laughs> you know, something, something like that, you know, yeah. like, and you get a five year sentence. Um, is that better than two years? Like how long does it take for you to like be sufficiently punished and learn your lesson? And then when does it just kind of convert into you just like sitting there? They're, they're just warehousing you there. You know what I mean? Like, like at some certain point, your punishment is, is for not, you know, like you've learned your lesson, you've changed, you've thought about it and you're ready to go back and return to your family or 
start working and paying taxes again or like becoming a productive person, but you're going to just have to sit there and ride this time out. Grim. Yeah. And don't get me wrong too. I'm not saying that there's not people who don't deserve to be there. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's definitely people who need to be taken off the streets just because it makes everybody else safe. You know, there's some people who should not be sure. mixing in with the rest of us. Yeah, I'm not doing Absolutely. That. I don't think we're taking it that way. But, no, no. But as a system, though, I mean, at, looking at it as not necessarily like, you know, okay, there are definitely people who need to be, who re- need to remain in jail. But what's better for the society overall? You know, I, like look, looking at it that way, like this method of warehousing people to me doesn't seem to be a positive method of managing a society, really, you know. I mean, there has to be like some other some other way of dealing with this. So I guess that's one of the objectives of this piece you're working on. Absolutely, is talking about you know, we could do this better. We could do it more, more humane. We could do it cheaper. We could do it so it benefits everybody in society. You know, and there's going to be mistakes and there's going to be you know some failures that are, that are going to come of this. But overall, the way we're doing it right now is 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 a proven failure. You know, it, it doesn't work. It's super expensive and it's just propping up you know, select business interests while in, in, you know, paying lip service to the idea of rehabilitating people or making society safer. You know, they, they bring out all these tough on crime. Like every time there's an election season, you know, there's a lot of tough on crime talk. What about smart on crime? You know, there's a difference and one makes a lot of sense and the other one sounds nice, but has no substance. Yeah. So you're, um, how long was, um, was your, I'm going to call him your uncle, even though I know he's yeah. technically, how long was he, was he in, in uh, incarcerated for? He, he did 41 years, which is my life. That's my entire life. So it's hard for me to comprehend that wow. he went in, um, at 21 and came out. He was just, he got out on his 62nd birthday. He was released on his birthday wow. and he was never supposed to get out. He, he, like I referenced earlier, he wrote his own appeal after a bunch of lawyers just kind of blew him off. He had the time in solitary. He got the books. He, you know, he's very intelligent. He wrote, he did all of his own legal research. He wrote his own appeal and, um, he was heard by a judge and he made the convincing argument. Um, you know, he poured through his transcripts and he was eventually able to, you know, overturn the, he won a new trial, but because it was 40, 40 years old, no witnesses left, yeah, you know, like, so, yeah. so like I was talking about the plea bargains earlier, they said, well, if you plead guilty to a manslaughter charge instead of murder, uh, we'll let you out on time served. You already served more than the maximum sentence we could give you. And so, you know, that was a plea you couldn't turn down, you know, like, so what was the nature of his, like, what was he incarcerated for yeah, specifically? It's, um, going back to, you know, we're talking in the early 1960s. We're talking, I believe, 1963. We're talking 1963. He, um, you know, downtown Boston, you know, um, by Filene's, you know, right in the downtown shopping district, yeah. there's a, a jewelry store. And the building's still there today, right at the corner of Winter Street. He and a buddy that he knew from reform school um, were going to do a stick-up jewelry store. So they go in together, you know, with masks on. And somebody, you know, they were going to go put guns in their faces, steal a bunch of diamonds, take off. And, and Bobby's plan at that point was to, you know, take the cash that he could get from fencing those and, you know, maybe take off and start over again out in California. You know, he wanted to, he wanted to get out of Boston. They go in that, 
that day it was about noontime on a on a Saturday. A lot of tons of foot traffic and shoppers all over the place. They go in. It's the second story of a building, so they get up there. And the instant they walk in, they point guns in everyone's faces and, you know, like shoppers and everything. And um, somebody immediately hits an alarm. And so they, they withdrew. They beat it out of there. They run down the stairs together and they get down to the front door. His partner, you know, runs out the door, hooks a right. He comes out, hooks a left. And there's a there's a cop right there, you know. <laughs> like, And so he starts running up the street, you know, towards Boston Common right by Park Street Station. Hearing gunshots the whole time. Turns out that his partner, who had run in the other direction, came face to face with a plainclothes cop, and he just drew down on him and, and shot him, you know, several times, like right wow. in the chest, just like killed the guy right there on the sidewalk in broad daylight, Damn. and ran off. Ah, uh, so Bobby makes it up to Park Street Station. He he carjacks a cab, <laughs> makes it up to the street, but there's so much traffic that he just gets surrounded by the cops. So he puts his gun down on the seat and he gets arrested right there on the spot, and um. He goes back to the station and takes quite a beating. He has no idea that his partner, you know, killed a cop. Uh, that his partner's still on the loose. But then, um, when when the cops closed in on him to arrest him, he shot himself. Oh wow! Yeah, so so he's the last man left standing. So in Massachusetts, under felony murder, although he didn't shoot anybody and he didn't kill anybody, he goes on trial for first degree murder. And at the time, they had the death penalty in the state of Massachusetts. So he was facing the death penalty, but they decided to not pursue that. So he went through his trial and he actually testified at his own trial, which is not typical. Usually a murder defendant yeah. does not right. do that. So that's kind of rare. I know that just from watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> so he did that and um, he was convicted and he, he got a life sentence, you know, so he got sent to, you know, he's in Walpole state prison doing life at age 21. And he, um, you know, like he never killed anybody. So he has this murder conviction without having killed anybody. But he was part of a felony where, where somebody died. And right. it didn't matter that it was a cop, you know, like somebody died in the course of a felony that he was part of, he's going down for it. He may as well pull the trigger according to the law. That's kind of a bizarre, I mean, is that typical in other states? Yeah, they do have that. So like, in other words, like if you were like the getaway driver in a bank robbery and your partner went into the building and it, although it wasn't part of the plan, like he killed somebody in the building, like right. a security guard jumped out of nowhere and he shot yeah. him. Um, it's not going to be a valid defense for you to say, well, I was just the driver. I had a lesser role. Huh. What they do though, is they would usually, if there's a conspiracy, if there's, you know, two or more people involved in a criminal enterprise, they find the least involved person and get them to testify against the most involved yeah, people. Okay. Like, so they flip them for in exchange for a lower sentence or sometimes even straight immunity. Hmm. Right. So, but in this case, it was just him. He was the only one, one left is his yeah. partner who did the shooting. He's dead. He's gone. So, so he's got to take the fall for this. And, and he did once he's in the prison system, he, um, you know, he has a long story. You know, and we talk about that a lot too. He he did so much time there that there was different phases of his incarceration, including several escapes, <laughs> which I always thought it was um, extremely interesting. That you know, you that's the stuff you see on TV, like somebody yeah. busts out of prison and stuff. But he actually did do that several different times. Now, is it Walpole? Known for like a, I mean, isn't like only one of the few people actually escaped from Walpole? He did not escape from Walpole. He did a lot of his time there, but he's been at different facilities okay. over time too. And he, um, 
he did not escape from Walpole. Okay. Right. No, that was not one of the facilities he broke out of. The um, but even going back, you know, to his time, like in the in the early nineteen seventies, he when he was at Walpole, you know, he's like thirty years old at this point. You know, he'd he'd been there long enough. He's a veteran. He knows people. He's you know knows where his place is in the hierarchy. And you know, he was he was high up. He was somebody who was involved in dealing drugs and and um had all the right connections and, you know, had power and influence while he was in there. And he was also part of um, what became called the NPRA, the National Prisoners' Rights Association. And they attempted to go legitimate route to unionize. They're like, we're workers. You know, we want to be treated like workers with the rights that workers have. And um, it was a very interesting pursuit that, that they, you know, attempted to get union certification because what happened was, all of the guards went on strike. The corrections officers went on strike at that time. You know, they were having contract disputes. And the, a prison can't operate unless the prisoners cooperate. They're the ones who do the laundry. They cook the food. Oh, yeah. They mop the floors. And if they refuse to do all that stuff, the guards aren't going to do it. That's not their job description. So what happened was there was um, a lot of violence going on at that time. They had... I think it was something like 18 murders in 18 months. It was something like astronomically high like that. And, and uh, the violence was off the charts. But what would happen was, is, um, you know, Bobby was the president of the, you know, the fledgling NPRA. And he, um, he managed, he had the credibility where he could reach across racial lines, which was not okay to do. You know, but he did that and, and got everybody to get on board with the program of like, there'll be no violence against us. It's the prisoners against everybody else. We're going to be a united front. And he headed their negotiations and he had a lot of, um, you know, power, you know, yeah. because he was able to do that. Um, ultimately, it did not work out in their favor, but there were many lessons to be drawn from like what happened during that time period. And, you know, they showed like what like their unity could do. I mean, they could shut that place down, but they also operated completely peacefully when they were doing it on their own terms. When they didn't have guards looking over them, they'd be, they would, some of them would be like maybe in the front control room or something, but they, they would have, um, outside observers coming in right. to watch and everything and everything was smooth. So kind of like the lesson drawn from that was like, you know, if they weren't being subjected to abuse or they weren't being subjected to difficult conditions and they could find some type of unity amongst themselves, like as, as prisoners or the idea was to be, have the unity as workers, you know, we're all workers, you know, like that kind of true union. Um, and they could avoid many of the problems that, you know, the violence and, and the abuses that were going on in prisons. There is a book called when the prisoners ran Walpole and he's featured heavily in that really? book. He's quoted extensively and it, it kind of memorializes this point, this point in time that not many people know about. And, um, it's, it's, it's a, you know, all the, all of the documents were drawn and everything. And it's a highly interesting book. It, it chronicles the, everything that happened in just that, you know, that short period of time. As opposed to being thrown in jail. Right. You, you take know. a guy with like schizophrenia or somebody who's hearing voices and somebody who, you know, they're not on their meds. Of course, they're going to act out and many times violently or yeah. when they're on the street, like my time in the court system, I was, I, I saw the same individuals over and over again. Like they would like, you know, have their pants down standing at the train station or they'd be harassing people who were just, you know, like shopping and they yeah. were getting arrested for really stupid things all from their mental illness. They weren't criminals. They weren't bad people, you know, but there's, 
we don't have the structure, like we don't have the hospitals, they're all closed. So yeah. the prisons have become like the de facto hospitals. You know, we don't have places to put adults who are suffering from mental illness. And if they don't have family members taking care of them, um, then they're out there and they're going to end up in prison. And then they're not equipped to yeah. deal with those same people. Yeah, they don't have the infrastructure to right. deal with that. Yeah. What do you think about all these shootings and stuff that have been happening? I mean, I think... I can't help but believe that that has something to do with medication and antidepressants and all this other stuff too. Yeah, um, I, I definitely agree. And you know, like some of these people, like take for example, like Newtown, Connecticut, and Aurora, Colorado, just to take two recent examples. Both those guys clearly have mental illness things going on. And so, you know, when they're the, the gun control debate is, you know, at a fever pitch right now because yeah. of, especially, you know, I have innocent five-year-old victims. Sure. I have a five-year-old son, you know, that, that incident definitely affected me and made me like really have to think about how I felt about this stuff. And it became a lot more real, you know, after that shooting, as opposed to, you know, they're all horrible. But when you look at five-year-old victims, it's just like about as bad as you can imagine. Yeah. And, you know, the question becomes like, how do you, how would you ever pass a law that would have prevented that? There's and, no way. Of doing yeah. That. And, and that's, I, I think we're kind of stuck with that. I think, again, it goes back to politically, something's got to be done. We got to pass a law that looks like we're tougher on it, but will it in substance, in actuality, will it prevent things like that from happening? And I think most rational people would say it wouldn't. If somebody really is committed to doing an act like that, they're going to be able to do it. <laughs> I mean, like the real common denominator is, is there, is the, the antidepressant medications, I think, you know, I mean, if you look at what's common between all those cases is the fact that they're on these meds, on these pharmaceuticals. And, you know, I mean, just when you look on, you know, you, there's an advertisement on television just for like Viagra or whatever, <laughs> you know, there's like, oh, this is wonderful. But then there's the, the fine print of side effects that result from that, you know, like dementia, like all this crazy <laughs> shit. <laughs> so, I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is is responsible more so than, you know, the gun industry. You know what I'm saying? I feel like, you know, there there's definitely this, this gun control, like, debate going on. It, but that's not really the issue. The issue is pharmaceuticals and how we deal with people's behavioral problems, you know, as opposed to, like, okay... We're going to ban guns. So then now there's going to be, you know, what, a rash of stranglings that go on because <laughs> some dude is like on some, you know, medication. He's like suffering these side effects. So he's like choking people to death instead of shooting them. You know, so it's it's like I don't feel like that has any bearing on the situation. Right. And I'm pretty sure pharmaceutical companies are not interested in getting as many people as possible off of their product. You know, it's just the opposite. So so where does this leave us? How do we prevent bad things from happening? You know, and uh, that's the question that we're going to be facing for a long time. We we don't really know. And everybody has thoughts and ideas about it. But, you know, if you pass a law or a series of laws to, you know, restrict guns or try to keep them out of the hands of mentally ill people, well, we still have a Second Amendment. People have the right and they're going to scream that until it's, you know, like they're never going to stop pointing to that fact. There is a right and it cannot be taken away. They can be restricted seriously and pretty heavily, but it can't be taken away unless we amend the constitution, which yeah. isn't going to happen. No. Right. So, um, so all you got to do is you, you have somebody who's mentally ill. They might not be able to go out and legally purchase a gun, but they can grab one that's legally existing in their own home 
from a family member, or they could still easily get one. Well, even <laughs> even uh, non-legal methods, it's still not very difficult to get weapons. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, they're all out there, and you know, not a lot of bad guys go out and register their gun and train at a firing range and get their, you know, properly licensed firearm. You know, yeah. then go out and rob a store with it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it doesn't go down like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, what's the um, the overall? what's this all these interviews and whatnot that you've been doing with your you know with your with your uncle what's the final form of all this sort of stuff like what's what's the uh, going to be the the manifestation of all this time you spent yeah the manifestation will be a book um and through that book we hope to generate conversation uh we hope to to educate people i mean i have a background as an educator and i know a little bit about the law and he's he's an expert on corrections that's for sure <laughs> you know oh, like, yeah. he certainly is and he's done his homework too he's not just a guy who hung around in one place for a long time uh, he's he's done his research and he's done his homework you know he can give you the facts and figures and statistics as good as anybody and you know he frequently testifies in public he was up in new hampshire in front of the state house in the state house in front of you know the legislature just last week he'll be on a panel at harvard next week wow and, you know so he does real deal stuff um you know he's profiled in the new yorker you know so he he's um he knows what he's talking about and he's a very legitimate person when in especially talking about prison issues so us kind of like teaming up we're hoping to show people, you know, not so much tell them or, or um, you know, preach to people, but kind of show them, like, did you know that this what this is what's going on? And, and maybe getting people to reconsider and refine what their opinions are about it. Like I said earlier, like if you didn't have a friend or family member serving time, it's very easy to shrug about and just not care. But the thing is, like, you live in society too. Like, in, until the day you get mugged or someone steals your car. Then all of a sudden, you know, you're sort of concerned about, well, well, how did this happen? What kind of person would do that? Right. And, you know, and those people are all graduating from our institutions. You know, those are the people coming out of there and doing the stuff, victimizing, you know, regular people like me and you. So everybody should be concerned. And what's funding it and funding the business interests behind it, it comes out of our pocket as well. When we could be spending that money. And this is where I personally, you know, like have a stake in this. I feel like, you know, I work in a school that's falling apart and we could definitely be serving those kids better. And that's all over the country. And when you look at, you know, how much money goes into the, the punishment in prison industry versus education, I, I personally find it infuriating. And I, I wish more people saw that too. And I'm not saying I'm, I have some secrets. I just think that there's some issues that people haven't paid much attention to. And um, I happen to know a little bit about it, and Bobby definitely knows a lot about it. And together, we're hoping to, through our writing, through talking to people, through getting conversations going, that, you know, just kind of getting that conversation out there and getting more attention to it so that people's, you know, it takes a while to shift opinions, and it takes a while to get people to think in a different way. And we're not trying to brainwash anybody or, like, sell people, but it's, like, simply show them and let them draw their own conclusions. And we're pretty confident they'll draw the conclusions that we've reached to. Right. One other thing too is um you you never really you didn't know Bobby before you got because you were you know you weren't born yet, right? When he was No, no I knew of him as I got older, but not until I was like older, like maybe like yeah. in college. And he <laughs> like, had no idea who you were either, really. No. No, I mean uh I met him about a week after he got out. So what was that initial meeting like? <laughs> uh I knew who he was and um I think he had known a little bit about my background, yeah. you know, and like he kind of teased me about being a prosecutor like right away and I felt comfortable. 
And I was actually taken aback that I thought like, you know, I had preconceived ideas about somebody who'd serve time in prison too. I thought he yeah. was going to stab me because I didn't ask him to pass the salt properly or something <laughs> like that. But he's actually like this extremely like, um, friendly and affable guy. You know, he, right. he's a uh, quick to laugh, like loves to laugh, always smiling and always has a positive attitude. And, uh, and from people I've spoken to, he was even like that in prison, you know, like I'm sure he had his dark days or many of them, but he, um, always maintained a positive attitude. And, you know, he always kind of kept his mind outside of the prison walls and, uh, and I respect him for it. I, I, uh, I think he's a person that, that is very different, um, from other people who've served time. And I think he's pretty unique. I've heard him be dismissed as just like a criminal, like, you know, I've, like any person who served time, they just got dismissed as a non-human. Uh, but you know, he, he's somebody who, um, he has some valid opinions. He has some valid thoughts. And when we connected, you know, like within just a few minutes of me meeting him, he was showing me his legal documents and I was clearly interested in them. And, you know, I was asking a lot of questions and, you know, like it was instantaneous that we, we started a relationship and, and, uh, you know, I asked him a million questions and that, that quickly got us into very long conversations. And soon we were just kind of meeting one-on-one -on -one and talking about, about these things. And it's like almost exclusively what we talk about, yeah. you know, and I, I do see him frequently, you know, and other, we talk on the phone, we email and, um, meet in person all the time. And, and we go over, you know, and as we're developing this writing project, you know, it's, it's been a journey. We've been going through this whole thing together and kind of refining thoughts and refining ideas. I've learned a ton through the process and, um, and, and I've watched him become a free man again. You know, he got out of that prison. He, he didn't recognize the city that he left, you know, he's out there looking oh, yeah. for like a building that used to exist sure. and it's not there. And he's like this sociological study and somebody like, like, um, like a caveman who woke up, he like came out and, you know, you'll see this in our writing that when he got out, um, he had no clothes, you know, he'd been in so long, he had no personal possessions and, in, in, uh, you know, my uncle brought him to, to CVS, my aunt and uncle brought him there and, and they had like a hundred different toothbrushes to choose from oh, yeah. and it overwhelmed him. Yeah. He had like a mini panic attack because he didn't know what color or what size that was an overwhelming choice for him because he had never had that. <laughs> wow. So just kind of a small, like simple little thing that you and I don't ever think about was a big deal and difficult for him to process and get through. That's heavy, man. It was, it is heavy. That. It is heavy. Or just like, even when, he would be, like shuffle around. He wouldn't take full strides because he was used to having shackles on. Wow. Like that's how acclimated to that life he was that. And, um, even today he's been out for 10 years and he, he told me recently, he's told me several times, but he, but he told me recently he wakes up every 45 minutes because that's when the guards rounds were 24 seven. And, you know, they'd always be banging keys and like, you know, intentionally being loud and waking you up wow. and he still wakes up, you know, you know, that period, like those same time period intervals all night long, every night. Wow. You know, what's interesting is, um, cause you know, I was telling you earlier, I injured my knee recently and, uh, last week I went to see an acu an acupuncturist, you know, sort of holistic medicine guy. And, you know, in addition to just treating specifically the knee, they look at the, your entire, you know, your whole trip, like how many hours of sleep, what you eat, you know, like you know, emotionally, like what your condition is. And he was asking me about my sleep and, you know, I wake up a lot during the evening, not, you know, I mean, I don't live in a jail where some dude's <laughs> like, you know, smacking the, the bars or whatever. But, uh, the, what, what, uh, my acupuncturist said is that, you know, 
that interruption of that REM cycle really upsets your whole flow as a human, man. Like that's where you recover and your body, you know, regenerates itself by those like deep sleep patterns. So it's, it's a, once again, just like another thing, man, of like that life behind bars that just leads to like just a negative path. You know what right. I'm saying? Right. And, and a lot of times it gets painted by at least law enforcement community as like, They'll flip it right around and say, you know, like, well, if we gave them washes and dryers and microwaves, they'd still complain. We're not here to coddle them. But at the same time, you know, there's basic functions that need to be fulfilled. And like, (laughs) you know, like, like something as essential and basic as sleep. Um, You know, if you're in solitary, those fluorescent lights don't go off. I mean, that must be maddening. I I don't think I could handle it. I don't, you know, but you'd be forced to handle it. (laughs) You'd have no choice. There's also... um you know, we were talking about diet and nutrition earlier too, and about, you know, omega threes and the different sort of oils that your body needs. And the, uh, you know, we probably differ on this, but the a- animal fats versus vegetable oils and a lot of the food that was made in prison, it relies heavily on, you know, saturated fats and like vegetable oil and how that actually affects your, your sort of mental stability and your aggression too. Oh. The, the facilities I visited, it was um, industrial grade food. So, you know, yeah. I guess that's something along the lines of like, we're going to give you this meat, but it's it's it meets the bare minimum legal requirements to be able to call it meat. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, its nutritional value must be hover around zero. It's got to be terrible. I, I've looked at the meals. They look horrible. You know, it's probably as bad as like, you know, think back to your high school cafeteria, but probably worse. You know, like it, it looks like it's. I don't know how inmates get like overweight and things like that with the meals that they have. But well, it's probably because they're like jacked up with fillers and all sorts of stuff. You know yeah, what I mean? it's like if you don't eat it though, it's not like you can just call order a pizza. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like have it or don't. Got. It's that's it. You just got to live with it. Wow. Huh. Yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> I can't imagine living like that, man. No, in in TV and movies do a lot to kind of, um, you know dramatize it and show like that this is what it's like it looks like there's a riot every day the places i visited i was struck by how bored they looked yeah and you know how like you just wait for a bus or something and it's like 15 minutes feels like forever but imagine that being your your 24-hour reality and like you just can't wait for like nine months from now or four years from now or 10 years from i just can't even can't even fathom like every minute that you're awake you just can't wait for it to be over and and um you know tv does a lot to show like the exciting parts and they do this with law too and I, I've said this many times to like students and things like that who are interested in legal careers. I'm like, they show all the best parts. They show the dramatic courtroom scenes or, or like a brutal cross exam or, you know, something like that. You know, the arrest scenes, all these exciting things that look like really great. And, and those things are there. You do experience those things, but they're, it's just like a small fraction. You know, they don't make a TV show about somebody doing legal research at like 11 p.m. on a Wednesday night, (laughs) you know, in an office with like a cup of coffee and all these books all over the place, like (laughs) trying to pull together a memo for the following morning. And and that's your reality. That's most of what you're doing, you know, but um, they just show all the good stuff. And and I think prison is has shaped most people, you know, has been has been shown in the media and shown on TV. And of course, they go out and find the the scariest possible guys. The places I've visited, like you know, those guys are there. But you see a lot of guys who they look so incredibly normal that your first question is, "What are they here for?" They don't yeah. look like a criminal. 
they don't look like you know a bank robber or a druggie or drug dealer or whoever you're just very curious like what is that guy here for you know because that's not the person you see depicted on tv or in the movies they always find the most hardcore guys yeah you know like throw yeah and throw them in there and they look great and you know like they're scary and they're convincing and all that stuff but that's that doesn't really reflect reality. So I think that makes a lot of people have those um, super negative opinions about who goes in there. Yeah. You know, it's and like it's a stereotype it's, of yeah. like, you know. Yeah, like good people guy. make mistakes or mess up or like, and you know, a huge amount of them are in there because they have a drug problem, which led to crime. You know, they got addicted, so they made a stupid choice. You know, they robbed or stole or did something. But it was the drugs that fueled it. And it's yeah. like, if you got that person help, you got a good person. You know, like you subtract their alcohol problem or their drug drug addiction. Yeah, but and that, you're left with a decent person who, who could follow the law. But that's like a deeper, like sociological yeah. sort of issue. You know, it's not just subtracting like, you know, okay, well, this guy wasn't a drug addict, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, but those are the people you see in there, though. Like, yeah. like that that's their backstory. You're like, how did you throw your whole life away? And it was always drugs was always behind it. Getting attacked by my cat over here. <laughs> well, anyway, Chris, thanks a lot for coming down, man. Of course, like this, my pleasure uh, to be here. Absolutely, uh, I always enjoy talking to you, and you always have um, really good questions and insight. And you know, like it's always a uh, pleasure to me to hang. So keep me keep me updated about what's going on with this uh, writing project. Yeah, of course. In fact, I'll I'll, I'll give you some of the you know um, sample chapter kind of things, and um, you know, I'll, I'll let you in on what I'm doing for sure, and. Uh, keep you posted on how things are developing and, you know, just keep you, keep you in the loop about what's going on from now until the time that, you know, I'd love to have this thing. We don't have a specific timeline just yet, but we're, we're getting, we're getting on in this. We're pretty deep into it and, uh, you know, everything goes the way I hope we're looking hopefully by next fall. Great. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. Look at you and me Tear each other apart I don't mean to do it You don't mean to do it So we better stop it now Because we're tearing each other apart Tearing me apart Tearing you apart Tearing us apart It's hard to be alone
crowd. <laughs>